with regard to today's evening the subject being Islam in the 21st century this crisis of understanding has occurred previously in history also when we study the occupation of Egypt when Egypt was colonized by the British the British placed Lord Cromwell as the overseer of Egyptian affairs and during that time in the late 1800s they instated a sheikh by the name of Muhammad Abdu as the Sheikh Al-Azhar, the Sheikh of the University of Al-Azhar. Al-Azhar Al-Sharif is the most prestigious Islamic university alongside with Al-Qarwiyyin, Al-Qarwiyyin being the most ancient university in the world, established 1200 years ago by Fatima al-Fihriya but al-Azhar was also established well over 800 years ago initially by the Fatimi Shia it was only after a Sultan Salahuddin al-Ayubi rahimahullah ta'ala that al-Azhar became the central point of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah al-Azhar was the place for fatwa, for verdicts. And we saw and witnessed in history many illuminaries who were mutakharrijeen, graduates of Al-Azhar al-Sharif, the likes of Shaykh al-Islam Zakaria al-Ansari for instance, but many more. The list is endless. So it was vital for the colonial powers at the time that they place in Al-Azhar those people who can undermine the Islamic rulings. Why? Because this religion is unique, Al-Islam, that in Al-Islam we have a Sharia al Islamia, which even dictates to us those things which regulate for us our worldly life like the prohibition of riba. Now, Lord Cromer came from a banking family. He was Jewish. They changed his name to Cromer to make him sound more British. But being from a banking family, one of the things that they would want done is the permissibility of a riba usury. So Muhammad Abdu, he was one of the tools, the instruments of this colonial power to give such type of verdicts.
That is where the concept of clashing between modernity and Islam has its roots even in the modern age today. While in the Indian subcontinent, which was also colonized by the British, the East India Company, after the defeat of Siraj Dawla in 1756 by Robert Clive and the treachery of Mir Jafar, the British, they established an institute within India which is known as Aligarh University. And Sir Sayyid Ahmad led the Aligarh University. Today in Pakistan they have even placed Sir Sayyid on the Pakistani repeat. Not knowing the relevance of Sir Sayyid in terms of the reformist movement. This became known as the reformist movement. What is this reformist movement which started in India with the inception of Aligarh University and in Al-Azhar al-Sharif under Muhammad Abdu. It was the claim that Islamic beliefs, Al-Aqidat al-Islamiyah, is not compatible with modernity. And therefore, many things need interpretation. It was also the claim that Islamic law is not compatible with modernity, with science. And therefore, Islamic law needs interpretation. This was the foundation of these claims. As if to say that the defeat of Siraj al-Dawla and the in subsequent invasion of Hindustan or Hind, the real name is Al-Hind, Bilad Al-Hind. For us Muslims, it's Al-Hind. And this is why even Indian Muslims, when they fl fly the secular Indian flag, this is wrong. Why don't they look for the flag of the Mughal dynasty and make that the official flag of the Muslims? But as if to say that the defeat of Siraj al-Dawla was because of backwardness of science amongst the Muslims or the backwardness of religion of Islam. Is this true? The answer is no. During the rule of Aurangzeb, who was the most religious ruler from the Mughal dynasty, how the Western world judges economies through GDP. And if you look at the GDP of India at the time, even though this method of checking economic growth, the Western model or the Western paradigm of GDP, it can be faulted. But Hind at the time had over 25% of the world's GDP under the most religious leader of the Mughal dynasty, Aurangzeb. And even at, during that time, there was a time, if you read some of the news, you would, have, you would find an article which mentioned some treasure cases were found, treasure chests, in which there was silver coins, filled with silver coins worth millions in that time, worth billions today. 
These were treasure chests that were imported and exported from Hind in during that time, during the time of Aurangzeb, that were robbed and stolen by Western pirates at that time. And they even took the treasure chests to America, to the new, to the new colonies. But the wealth of the Muslims was exponential. Aurangzeb, he established the Islamic constitution under Fatawa Alamgiri, which is known as Al-Fatawa Al-Hindiya. And when the British entered in the 1700s, they observed the madrasa learning in that time, and they acknowledged that the learning of the mullah in that time exceeded the, the knowledge of centers of learning within the Western world like Oxford and Cambridge and so many other centers of learning. That to become a mullah in the Mughal dynasty, a person, for instance, would not learn one language, they would learn multiple languages and they would learn various sciences. It's a, an historical fact. But he was the most religious leader. So what was the real reason for the defeat of the Muslims? It was not scientific backwardness. It was not religious backwardness. In reality, it was corruption. It was greed. It was corruption of the heart. Because if Mir Jafar's heart was not corrupted by greed and disputes, then the Indian, the Hind, the Muslims of Hind would not have been defeated. And similarly with later when Tipu Sultan was defeated, that if there was not internal weakness, the Muslims would not have defeat, been defeated. In fact, you find in a hadith that it, and as Shaykh al-Islam Muhammad bin Ja'far al-Kattani he mentions this hadith in his book, Nasihatu Ahli al-Islam, he mentions that if there are 12,000 Muslims and they have no corruption, they can never be defeated. 12,000 Muslims. <coughs> that they have no corruption. Today when we see Muslims being defeated, you will always see disunity and corruption within them and this is why they are defeated. So. To claim that Islam was the reason for the back technological backwardness and scientific backwardness of the Muslims is false. And the very premise and foundation of the movement of Aligarh University, led by Sir Sayyid, meaning a man who is knighted by the British at the time, he is knighted by them and then claims to be anti-colonial rule. He's given knighthood and then claims to be against the colonial rule. Or the claim made by Muhammad Abdu is a false claim. But this madrasa or this school, it became known as Al-Madrasatul Hisiyah, similar to logical positivism. Or it became known as al-madrasatul aqlaniya using the mind or claiming to use the rational mind is the foundations of this madrasa correct 
if we analyze the foundations, it's important today that we understand on what foundations was this madrasa constructed so we do not become victims to the false information, misinformation that is presented. Number one, they rejected miracles, al-mu'jizat. On what basis did they reject al-mu'jizat, miracles? The basis for rejecting miracles was that they deemed it impossible. So for instance, whatever miracles are mentioned in Al-Quran Al-Kareem, they deemed it rationally impossible and uh, an absurdity that contradicts science. So how do we deconstruct this claim? To understand this and to deconstruct this claim, we must realize that firstly, they were unable to distinguish, make the distinction between what is known as Hukmul Ada, which is the judgments, material judgments, and Hukmul Aql. This is so important to understand that if you understand this point, you will be able to unravel so many points. I'll give you an example. If a medieval peasant was told that there is something made and constructed of metal that can carry hundreds of people across the oceans and transport them. The medieval peasant may deem it impossible. He may even say to you, you are mad. Why? Because he has never observed such a thing. But if that same medieval peasant was transported to the future, and he saw the inventions that human beings have made, that they have constructed airplanes, and with the airplanes that are able to carry hundreds of passengers, they will realize that this is possible. This possibility and impossibility does not fall under rational impossibility. Rational impossibility relates ju to judgments of the mind, that which the mind deems as impossible. This possibility and impossibility falls under material impossibilities or possibilities. Material possibilities relate to the external realm. For instance, hundreds of years ago, someone may deem these trams that you have in Amsterdam they would have thought these are impossible. What type of impossibility? Material impossibility. That we do not have the material means of constructing such a thing. But hundreds of years later, we were able to construct those things. When we discuss rational impossibilities, it is that which is understood solely from the mind without reference to the external senses that we understand it to be impossible like what if I said to you two and two is five you will understand solely from the mind that two and two is not in fact five it is four and it can never be five this is rationally impossible you know this solely from the mind when people mix up the rationally impossible and the materialistically impossible, 
they confuse miracles with that which is rationally impossible. When we say that a mu'jiza occurs, a miracle occurs, a, an miracle, a miracle occurs for that which is materially possible, not for that which is rationally impossible, not that which is impossible by the mind. Any time you have this discussion with anyone, you will always find that they confuse the two, even no matter how intelligent they think they are. They will always confuse the two. To construct a rocket and go into space is rationally possible. It's rationally possible. And it became materialistically possible in later generations. So when we discuss miracles, mu'jizat, mu'jizat relate to the norms that we observe, the norms that we observe, for instance, water runs downwards. That's the habit of water. It's, is it rationally impossible that water run upwards or is it habitually impossible? The answer is, it is habitually impossible. It is not the norm for it to run upwards. The qudra of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the divine power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, violates the norms and makes it possible for water to run upwards. This is the meaning of miracles. While the qudra, the divine power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not relate to the rationally impossible. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't make something moving and still at the same time. A paradoxical judgment. The divine power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala only relates to that which is rationally possible. But al-madrasatul hissiyah or the reformists, they were unable to make this distinction and they fell into the major mistake of deeming all the miracles as being fables and false accounts. This was the first mistake. And they deemed it anti-science and backwardness. But in reality, they were not even able to make the distinction between a rational judgment and a, a, a habitual judgment. And this is why it's essential for us as Muslims to understand the distinction between the two. And believing in those miracles does not make a person scientifically backward because scientific judgments relate to material judgments. Scientific experimentation relates to material judgments. This was the first mistake of Al-Madrasatul Hisiyah and then they rejected the second major mistake. They rejected everything relating to the metaphysical realm. What do we mean by the metaphysical realm? Ma That which is beyond the nature that we observe. That which is beyond the material realm. So, as I mentioned, logical positivism as a philosophy that claims that we can only ever know whatever we experience. <coughs> Similarly, 
There were other philosophies like dialectical materialism, which is a dialectical materialism, which is also the belief in only physical matter, which gave rise to communism and other philosophies and political thought. This affected the reformists also that they could not understand or appreciate the ghayb, whatever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala informs us of with regard to the ghayb, the unseen realm. How do we respond to this claim? It's essential for us to understand that there is a realm which human beings can never go beyond in terms of scientific research. When we research, scientific progress relates to the material realm. But the human senses, the five outward senses, they only relate to the external material world. We can never reach a judgment from the mind or from the senses with regard to the unseen. And this is why Al-Quran Al-Kareem informs us of the unseen, but it also answers an objection. And that objection is, some people say, why is the Quran not a book of science? The answer to that claim or that question is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gifted us with a mind such a mind by which we can conclude scientific research. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala honored the mind, gave sharaf or takreem to the human mind that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala left the human being to discover things for himself. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala informed us of those things which we can never discover with the mind. So in the Quran you are informed mainly with regard to things you can never discover with the mind. Even though Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala left scientific signs also in the Quran. For instance in Surah Al-Hadid chapter number 57 uh, of Al-Quran Al-Kareem and then you check the atomic numbers of iron, Surah Al-Hadid is iron. You check 20, verse 26 which mentions iron but then when you add the Bismillah rahman rahim it becomes 27 verse 27 if you add the Bismillah and that is the one of the atomic numbers uh, the, from the table of elements of iron within the chapter of iron or Another scientific number relating to the table of elements is 55.6. But then when you check the purer form of iron, it's 57. And that is the chapter number of Surah Al-Hadid. But the purpose of the Quran is to inform us more with regard to the world around us in terms of how do we relate to the world around us in worship, in gaining closeness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or the world, the hereafter. How do we prepare for our journey to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? And the theme of the Quran is one theme. What is that theme? 
the team is bringing humanity back to ubudiyah servitude to Allah, which is real freedom, back to servitude to Allah. That is why from Surah Al-Fatiha all the way to Surah Al-Nas, the theme of the Quran is one theme. This is why the Quran doesn't have chapters like a modern book telling you chapter one is about this subject, chapter two is about this subject, because the theme of the Quran is one theme, bringing people back to the servitude, of, servitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the second mistake the reformists made was that they thought that the Quran cannot inform us with regard to the metaphysical realm, that which is beyond the material realm. But in reality, the Quran informs us with regard to that which is beyond the material realm. And Al-Quran Al-Kareem gives us guidance with regard to that, but it does not oppose the mind. Whatever judgments are given with regard to Al-Jinn, we know Al-Jinn exists. We know Malaika exist, angels. We know the Arsh exists, the Kursi exists. This is not anti-scientific claims. These are those things which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala informs us of within Al-Quran Al-Kareem, that which we can never we can never reach or attain through sensory perception or through rational judgments. So this is a second mistake of Al-Madrasatul Aqlaniya. This was the second mistake that they made. The third major mistake that they made was that they rejected Khabrul Ahad, solitary hadith. Sometimes they may find a hadith in Al-Bukhari or the Sahih of Al-Imam Muslim and they cannot understand the hadith and because the hadith was narrated by one Sahabi or even many Sahaba they would end up rejecting the hadith how do we counter this claim also if we study those hadith that they rejected we will understand that their rejection of the hadith was unsubstantiated. For instance, I'll furnish a few examples so you can understand. In one hadith, it mentions that every day the sun takes permission <coughs> from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when the sun sets, it goes under the throne of Allah and it prostrates and takes divine permission to rise in the next place. This is the ostensible, approximate wording of the hadith. These people, they read the hadith, they could not make sense of it with the mind. So they rejected the hadith. But was their reading and understanding correct? The answer is no. Firstly, when it states that the sun goes under the arsh, what does this mean? The, the response is that the sun is always under the arsh. How? The arsh is the largest concentric creation which is beyond the seven heavens and encompasses the seven heavens. So it doesn't mean that the sun is running away 
to underneath the arsh, it's always underneath the arsh. Secondly, when it states that the sun is prostrating, they have made the basic flaw, flawed understanding that the sun is prostrating the way we prostrate with the limbs. We prostrate with our face, we prostrate with our hands. So they are imagining the sun bending down. In reality, sajda for each creation is in accordance with its nawiya, its type, its nature. So if I say this cup is prostrating, it doesn't mean you will see the cup bending down and going down towards the ground. It entails that the cup is subdued by the power of Allah. So the cup is prostrating, it's subdued by the power of Allah. So the sun prostrating entails that the sun is subjugated and subdued and is under the divine power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Thirdly, what does it mean that the sun takes permission to rise? Every moment as the sun is rising now in a country, at every point and moment, the sun is being given divine permission to rise and is under the arsh and is in prostration, meaning under the divine power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So they would read these type of hadith, they could not make sense of them, and they would abandon the hadith. For instance, if I told you many hundreds of years ago that there are talking shoes, and there are whips that talk, or a stick, walking cane that talks, you would not believe me. People read that in a hadith, Rasulullah informed us with regard to talking shoes, with regard to walking, uh, talking canes, walking canes. But now those inventions have been made. But imagine the wretchedness of an individual who had read the hadith, did not understand the hadith and rejected the hadith, mixing rational judgment with al-hukmul ada the material judgment. Similarly, what did they reject? They rejected the ascension of Isa salam and the descent of Isa salam. And this became crucial for the Qadiyaniyah. That the followers of Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, who was a false prophet, a kafir, who claimed to be a prophet, they needed to make the claim that Isa salam had died. They claimed he migrated to Kashmir and died in Kashmir. And they believed that Isa salam was not raised to the heavens and will not return in the end of times. Al-Madrasatul Aqlaniyah, they rejected this based upon what? That they claimed that it makes no sense. But in reality, this was undermining the divine power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. For instance, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can make his Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa travel at night in Al-Isra and raise the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa to the heavens in Al-Mi'raj, if this is under the power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, why would you deem it 
impossible for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to raise Isa alayhi salam. So the verse of Al-Quran al-Kareem, بَرَّفَعَهُ اللَّهُ إِلَيْهِ That rather Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala raised him, meaning Isa alayhi salam, to himself, meaning to his divine presence. Divine presence here, entailing the heavens. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala manifests himself to the angels in the heavens. Not because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is spatially enclosed by the heavens. This is in Al-Quran Al-Kareem. And has dalala qat'iyya, absolute decisive verse of the Quran that he was raised. But then the descent of Isa alayhi salam was narrated by no less than 28 Sahaba. 28 Sahaba, this means 28 individual narrations from the companions Ali Muridwan who narrated the descent of Isa salam in the end of times. So these were the type of hadith that they rejected and they assaulted the collections of hadith that if they thought something makes no sense to their mind, they would end up rejecting the hadith. The fourth major mistake of this school was the rejection of al-ijma' consensus. What is al-ijma' Al-ijma' is the agreement of those people who are referred to as al-mujtahidun. What al-mujtahidun? Al-mujtahidun are those people who are able independently to extract legal rulings from al-Quran al-Kareem and the sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam. Like in Al-Quran Al-Kareem, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لَعَلِمَهُ الَّذِينَ يَسْتَنْبِطُونَهُ مِنْهُمْ Those who are able to extract the legal rulings, they do what? They would have known the judgment. Who are these people? These are not common people, lay people. These are people who reach a high caliber, not only in language, in Al-Lughatul Arabiyah, and its accessories or ancillary sciences like syntax, morphology, and what rhetoric, whatever relates to language, fiqh philology, all these ancillary aspects of the Arabic language, but also what is known as usulul fiqh, which is legal theory, which is qawa'idu tafsir al-nusus the regulations of how to interpret the Qur'an and Sunnah. These people are known as mujtahidun, they exist in every century. But, they are limited in number. So in every 100 years, if you count the number of mujtahidun, they will, you can count them on your hands, or double the count on your hands, a dozen or two dozens of people in every century. When they concur on a legal ruling, that legal ruling becomes binding upon the ummah of the Prophet ﷺ. This is known as al-ijma'. Some of them attempted to deny this. They said, how can you have ijma'? They utilized straw man arguments, how they redefined ijma'. They said, ijma' means 
that every single person must agree. But this is absurd because you may have a taxi driver who disagrees. You may have a baker who disagrees. You may have a factory worker disagreeing. The agreement here means the mujtahid imams agree. If they agree with regard to a ruling, then that ruling becomes binding. And this was the Islam that was taught even by the likes of Imam Abu Ja'far al-Tahawi. Rahimallahu ta'ala, when you check his aqidah, he has ijma' as a source of law. It was also mentioned by Imam Muhammad bin Idris al-Shafi'i, rahimallahu ta'ala, in al-Risala. But they grasped onto the positions of a shawkani which are mentioned in Irshad al-Fuhul, where he rejected ijma' as a source of law. <coughs> but al-Shawkani was not original in his thinking. Prior to him, the Mu'tazila rejected it, but rejection of ijma' has no basis within the Qur'an and Sunnah. In fact, the proofs for ijma' are very strong. And ijma' in itself is agreed upon amongst the mujtahidun. Irshad al-Fuhul, as I mentioned once before, is not an original work. It's a mukhtasar, a summary of one of the works of a Zarkashi. Like Shawkani's Naylul Atar is also a summary, or he relies heavily on Fathul Bari for authentication. So he was not an original thinker as they make out. So rejection of Ijma' was the fourth major mistake of the reformist movement. The fifth major mistake of the reformist movement was their rejection of following one of the four Sunni schools. Rashid Ridha, remember Muhammad Abdu was a disciple of Jamaluddin al-Afghani. Jamaluddin was an Iranian Shia who entered Egypt and corrupted the mind of Muhammad Abdu. Muhammad Abdu in turn corrupted the mind of Rashid Ridha. Rashid Ridha would write a magazine known as Al-Mannar magazine. This magazine influenced the mind of Nasiruddin al-Albani, who later would also claim to abandon the four schools. Abandoning the four schools leads to every lay person claiming that they can extract legal rulings from the Quran and Sunnah. Every lay person. So this would mean every layperson can pick up Bukhari and Muslim and the Qur'an and other works of Hadith and extract rulings for himself, not leading to four Sunni schools, but leading to millions of individual schools, heretical schools. Every other person would claim something is permitted when in reality that action is not permitted. Like... Many years ago, you had a woman, Amina Wadud, she led men in prayer, which is not permitted according to the four schools, which is ijma', consensus. But she came to Oxford in England, and she led men in prayer. And this leads to other abominable, thi ab abominable things, like what? Like legalizing LGBT in the masajid. Meaning if every individual claimed to have ijtihad, they can perform ijtihad, they can extract legal rulings. There will be many deviant people with corrupt hearts that they will say, you can have LGBT flags on the masajid, you can have LGBT in the masajid. Meaning these are corrupt fatwas 
that modern Salafism leads to. Because every individual then claims to do ijtihad. But if we follow ijma' consensus, and we follow the four Sunni schools, you can never have this type of corruption. And in fact, the four Sunni schools, they unite the ummah of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, but they also give ease to the ummah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam because you find leeway and easy rulings found within the four Sunni schools that can be applied in different situations. So the four Sunni schools are a blessing and limiting oneself to the four Sunni schools is a blessing. But coming out of the four Sunni schools is a curse which leads to more disunity. And this was the fifth major blunder of this school which is known as Al-Madrasatul Hisiya or the reformists. And there is not much difference between them and Sir Sayyid Ahmad who led the Aligarh University who denied angels as existent beings in the metaphysical realm. He denied the existence of uh, jinn. And in fact, Muhammad Abdu or Rashid Rida, in their writings, they mention that the jinn are in fact bacteria. These, these type of false interpretations. Any one of the modernist or reformist movements that you see today that claim to be Muslims, you will find their roots within this reformist movement. And the reformist movement itself did not come with something new. Their thoughts were found in the early Mu'tazila. The Mu'tazila were an early sect. Within them you found these views, but their views were refuted to the point that Mu'tazila became non-existent. So this is why it's essential for us to understand that modernity is not in contradiction to Islam. Islam can adopt modernity, but Islam tames modernity. In Islam, we tame modernity. How? That environmental issues, the destruction of the biosphere, if we follow Islamic guidelines, you will not have pollution of the seas and the oceans and the rivers and the lakes because it goes against the rules and regulations of Sharia. Like the Ottomans did not permit the use of crude oil because when you burn crude oil it causes smell so they prohibited that. Similarly, the application of Sharia protects the minds of people by prohibiting cannabis and alcohol and harmful drugs, cocaine and other class A drugs and harmful drugs, narcotics. The Sharia of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protects life by installing capital punishment for murderers and rapists. The Sharia of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protects the wealth of people by legislating strict punishments for the thief. These punishments are not in contradiction to modernity. Some people think they are. They say they are barbaric and ancient punishments. As if to say, being ancient entails being barbaric. If that were the case, then prisons are the most barbaric form of punishment because prisons are the oldest form of punishment. Yet prisons are found throughout the world.
as if to say that if a Western capitalist country like the United States of America, when they electrocute a prisoner or they place lethal injection in a prisoner, as if to say that is not barbaric. But did you know why in Islam, when the capital punishment is implemented, they use something called qawad. What is qawad? Qawad is decapitating with a sword. That, to the modern mind, may seem more barbaric. But in reality, why did they use the sword? Because it was the swiftest way of taking the life without torturing the soul. But if you inject with a lethal injection, or you electrocute and burn someone to death, that is more medieval like witch burning. That in uh, the Salem witch burning that occurred in the colonies in America, modern day America, they burned women because they deemed them as witches. Electrocution on the chair is similar to that. So like this, Islam, the regulations of Islam, there is a wisdom behind each ruling which is known as maqasid al-sharia. What is maqasid al-sharia? The aims and objectives of the sharia, which protects lineage, it protects wealth, it protects the mind, it protects the honor of a human being. All of these things are protected by the sharia, which is known as the maqasid al-sharia, the objectives of the sharia. So the sharia does not contradict modernity. It protects modernity from its own harm, like pollution, like destruction of the biosphere, and so many other things which modernity brings with itself. But again, modernity is something relative. What we deem modern today will not be modern in a, in a hundred years. So if Islam had to change because of modernity, then that would mean every 100 years Islam would have to change. No. Islam embraces technology, embraces science, uh, embraces civilization, but then Islam gives civilization and science the guidelines by which civilization can advance itself. Before finishing, I would want to mention that it's absolutely essential for us as Muslims to learn the 20 essential attributes for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the opposites which are impossible for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and those attributes which are essential for the prophets and those things which are impossible for the anbiya and that one thing which is possible for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that one thing which is possible for the Anbiya alayhimu salatu wassalam which are referred to as the 50 essential Islamic beliefs. Insha'Allah, in the future when I come to Amsterdam, we will cover the 50 essential beliefs for every Muslim. These are essential 50 things which every Muslim should know we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to enable us insha'Allah to meet again and to cover the 50 essential Islamic beliefs, the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, knowing Tawheed and knowing Ar-Risala, the Prophethood of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Aqulu qawli hadha wa astaghfirullah li wa lakum wa atubu ilayhi.